Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. I've always found the term national treasure a bit cringy, if I'm honest, but today's guest does fit that bill. His glittering qualifications for such status include honorary fellowships of the Royal Society and of the British Academy, a peerage awarded in 1998 and being made a Companion of Honour in 2018. Yet he's also a local hero. Indeed, I'm standing outside his hometown library in Wigton, Cumbria, which was opened in 1975 by, you guessed it, said National Treasure. He is, of course, Melvin Bragg. So Melvin joined the BBC in 1961, and he never looked back. He's edited and presented The South Bank Show for the last 40 years and chairs In Our Time on BBC Radio 4. He's also written several award-winning novels, films, and works of non-fiction. Catherine Lynn, librarian for Allerdale Region, is waiting inside to talk us through the library itself, something of a treasure trove. Melvin still spends much of his time up here in Wigton. I say he never looked back, and yet he never really left in some ways. And he has kindly come into town to join us today. So without further delay, let's turn the page and start this conversation. Melvin, Catherine, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Melvin, we're in your hometown of Wigton. But I have to ask, nevertheless, why here? Why Wigton Library? Well, why Wigton is the first part of it. And I was brought here when I was three days old, brought away from the contamination of the city of Carlisle to the small market town of Wigton, which had a population of 5,000 people. It's basically a market town, but there are two factories as well. One, as it were, for the men, small fact, one for the women. Women worked in a clothing factory and the men worked in a factory which made that paper that used to go around cigarette packets, rayophane paper. Otherwise, it was a market town, and it still is a market town. And there were great auctions in the place for cattle, for pigs, for horses twice a year. And it informed my imagination ever since. It seemed to be a perfect town for a child. Well, it seemed to me that anyway. I was brought up, first of all, at the bottom of a street called Union Street. I don't remember anything about that. You went down through an archway into a little yard, and there were four houses, each had one, one room upstairs, one room downstairs. You shared a washhouse, you shared a lavatory. I don't remember that. That was the war just started. My father went away to war, and we moved into another house, in Council House Yard, down Station Road, which was an odd house. It was much, much bigger. But it was about three families that lived there, for one way and another. My mother had been fostered there, and other foster children had stayed there, and then others turned up. And that was a... An amazing place, and I've just been writing about it in the last few days, actually. Amazing place for trying to work out who was who and what was what. All these uncles who were not my uncles, aunts who were not my aunts, cousins who were not my cousins. Relationships that were completely false but taken for granted and very benign on the whole. But in the corner of that yard, to come to the library, was uh, the Wheaton Library. Pie Brigade were in that yard, and the man who cleaned the town with a brush and shovel, Mr Stoddard, he was in the yard, and there was a horse box in the yard, there was a state agent in the yard, and that was the yard where everybody in Station Road, quite a long road, all the women could hang their washing on Mondays. So it was like some kind of Ingmar Bergman ghost town. Then you tried to get to your house by going through the sheets without dirtying them. And in the corner was the library. You went up some steps, and the library is run by Mr Carrick, Willie Carrick, who was also the town clerk. And he was a fervent Wiktonian. He edited books of Cumberland Tales, or Cumberland Tales, as he'd call them. He spoke the dialect very broadly, but very clearly, so you understood what he was saying. 
he was a big figure in the town. He was very helpful to me. So I would scud down. It was only about 30 yards down the yard. He would say, read this, read that, read the other. So that was my first library. And it was a very fond memory because he was such a nice man. And the second library in Wickham was the, when that library closed, the Quakers. There's 12 denominations of religion in this town of 5,000 people. The Quakers are very strong. And they had a lovely Quaker meeting house, just not far from where we're sitting now. And the Quakers took over the library. And so we went to the Quaker house, to the library. They had false panelling in front of the, the shelves. If you went late on a Friday night, I just lingered as often as, I, as much as I could to see how many books I could carry. They would put the panelling back so it would become a room for the Quakers to sit in silence on the next morning. And then there's this library here, which I had the honour to open about 40 years ago, right in the middle of the town. And as you've seen, it's uh, first class, it's well-lit, well-stocked, multi-purpose. And that's the sum of the libraries. Mm. I suppose in terms of library in general, I was completely dependent on it, really. I mean, where else were we going to get books? Sometimes there was a sale and you bought a book or two, but basically, let's cut to the chase, it was libraries. There where I got the books that I read. And I know that you've described yourself as someone who likes being solitary but not lonely, and perhaps that's partly born out of being an only child, but... That strikes me as perhaps linked to your love of a library in terms of a library being somewhere where someone can be solitary and yet immediately part of a community. Yes, there are two communities. That's a good point. I mean, the community of those of us who went to the library mm. was, first of all, a little community. As I remember, the Council House Yard Library is only open on Friday nights and Saturdays. Mr Carrick was a busy man. So you'd meet more or less the same people. But the community, you remember, was a community of writers. Of course, you didn't think of them as writers then. You thought of them as stories and books, just like I never thought of films as anything to do with anybody but actors till I went to Oxford and started to see Ingmar Bergman films. I went to see a film with Errol Flynn in it. I didn't go to see a film by any director. Mm. And so there were this, that was the community. It built this other imagined community, which was extremely rich, and I still remember quite a lot of the books that I read at that time, and they'd all come from libraries. And Catherine, today we've walked in and, as Melvin said already, it's a thriving community heart, this library. You can tell there's kids out there in the main part of the library and with their parents, and, but they're also, uh, there's a knitting group, lively conversation over their knitting. That's just today, though. But could you explain a little bit the current context for us of Allerdale, which this is a part of the area, Allerdale, but Wigton Library today? We try to be a really big part of the community. Libraries have changed. They've had to move with the times. We have reading groups. We have knit and natter type groups, self-help groups. We have signposting groups that you can come along if you're a bit shy of going to an organisation for help. We can signpost and you know get people from that organisation to come to the library in a more relaxed environment so it's not as intimidating. Obviously, events for children... Currently, we've got Feed and Read, which happens in three libraries in Aldale at the moment, which is encouraging children to come to the library, get a free packed lunch and read with their friends, their parents, their us, and then rhyme time sessions, which are joined onto that for younger children. We did have a bad reputation or a reputation that preceded us that it's taken a long time to dispel. I mean, Melvin went to libraries as a matter of course and so did I because my parents took me, but a lot of people didn't. Mm. Or I see people, oh, I only went to the library when I was a child, and they have never been back. And because of that bad rep that you're talking about? Yeah, or they mis- don't see... Misconceived yeah. notions of what a library is, shush and... Yes, and that. the or the stern librarian. We do have a bit of a reputation, but it's just in the wrong image, because there's nothing stopping you going to the library at any age. It's there from birth. We join children who are tiny and we've got board books, we've got events going on to attract children. The problem is keeping them. When they get to teenage, oh, the library's not for me. But it is, you know, and it's to keep that interest. It's not just about reading, even though that's the biggest part. It's about self-improvement, education. People can just come in and do their homework, that kind of thing in a lovely environment. Yeah, which it is. I can vouch for And Melvin, in terms of painting a picture of Wigton, for those who have not had the pleasure of being here or coming here before, you very kindly have offered to read a short piece that you wrote very generously for a new anthology. I'm doubly grateful to you. A new anthology that I've edited, My First Memory, which is the first memories of great figures 
it would be very special for listeners to hear you conjure those childhood memories in your own words, if that's okay. Yes, I'd like to read that. That was a book that you put together, and the money was very well spent. Yes, well, it's in aid of the Refugee Council. Yeah, I'm sure the Refugee Council. Just before I do that, yes. just to give people an idea of why Wigton can be thought of as something that's deeply attaching, because it, for most people, they've never heard of it. It's a small, insignificant town in the northwest. But there was a feeling until mid-late teenage, even late teenage, I didn't feel better supplied with opportunities when I went to Oxford for months, maybe for the first year. I mean, when I say you have 12 churches, they're very different. The Anglican church had the massive, and I was in the choir from the age of six, had massive stuff to offer. We sang great music. There were big choir festivals. Catherine Ferrier was in one of the local choirs, and there were competitions choirs with three choirs in the town, school choirs and the Methodists were there, and you could go to their youth club. They were very good at ping-pong. The Roman Catholics came over. They were one of the first Roman Catholics to come after the Reformation. There's a big Roman Catholic settlement with the nuns. One of the things they were famous for was the dances, and so we all went to the dances of the Catholic. And so it went on. So it was rich in that Congregationalists, Salvationists, Salvation Army, Quakers, and so on. So that was rich. In another way, it was very severe and dampening, but it was very rich. And also, there were good schools. They've always been good or aiming to be good schools. There were a very anciently established grammar school, local primary schools. I went to a very good primary school with excellent teachers and then the national school, which is just along the road from here. So there was that as well. A good local shops and local butcher shops. I mean, the, the cows really grazed in the fields. Then they were taken to the slaughterhouse, slaughtered. Then they were taken to the butcher shop, to Toppin's butcher shop, and slaughtered. So there was a great deal there, an enormous number of clubs. I think it's partly to do with after the war, when the men came back from the war and were going to be, wanted to give something back, or what, for whatever reason. And there was a great public service thing there. I'm not idealising this, no. but the number of clubs is ridiculous. We were strictly working-class family, but I was in something called the AYPA, the American Young People's Association, which met in the parish rooms. We went on outings to Keswick. We did debates with Carlisle, AYPA, branch of the AYPA. I was in the Cubs and then in the Scouts. We're a very good scout troop. We went around north of England on camps and that sort of thing. There were obviously sports clubs all over the place. There's a good swimming club. We've been endowed a swimming pool by one of the big town benefactors in the late 19th century. And on and on it went. The Catholics had their own clubs and and so on. So there are masses to do. Mm. And there's a beautiful river going through it where we could build dams and fish and all that. So there's an awful lot going for it. So that's the background. In terms of the place itself, well, I find that I was locked into it. Psychologically, I don't quite know why. I mean, I think my mother locked herself into it because she was born illegitimately. And in this town, when she was born, that was a curse. And on the whole, and most maybe, say, I would say 90% of the time, either the mother or the child left the town. And her mother left the town. And she was fostered. Yes. So when we moved into the council house, my grandmother was not my grandmother. It was the woman who had fostered my mother, whom my mother called mother, and that was the beginning of, of, of all sorts of stories. So that's a background to it. I'm an unreliable witness. Some years ago, I wrote a novel, The Soldier's Return, which began with a man based on my father. I remembered the afternoon he'd arrived back home after the Second World War. I would be about six. I saw him clearly turning the corner of our yard in the small northern town in which we lived. His kit bag, my mother leaving the doorstep to meet him, me being swept up and thrown high in the air by this stranger father. Every detail was precise. When my mother read that, because I wrote about it in a previous book, when my mother read that, she said, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. She then described how on that day we'd gone to the nearby city of Carlisle to the railway station because, in a phrase which would come out of any epic, we got word the men were coming home. Carlisle was a city which made engines for the powerful trains which pulled Britain together. I was mad on trains. And I was going to meet my father, whose photograph I'd most likely kissed every night before taking the candle to bed. Old times, gaslight downstairs, tallow candles upstairs. My mother said we, that is, wives, sisters, daughters, friends, got up a bus to meet the returning servicemen. It's very likely that I'd never travelled a distance of 11 miles in my life, let alone been to the legendary metropolis of Carlisle. Yet despite every effort after my mother told me the truth, I couldn't recall a particle of what must have been the biggest day in my short life, so it seems I made it up. 
I can remember other things that happened when I was six, and they've been verified. For instance, two of my uncles frog-marched me to the church to answer the call for trebles in the choir, and a few weeks later, as the youngest choir boy, I read the first lesson in the service of nine lessons and carols. I remember being splayed with terror when I hit the phrase, and the serpent beguiled her and she did eat. What did it mean? And there was much else. The battered tricycle, which I instantly turned into a spitfire. On and on memory goes, yet I still can't remember the day of my father's return from the war, so beware. But if I were to choose the most memorable thing, it wouldn't be an event, but a feeling. I remember and can re-inhabit the sensation of unlimited freedom in that little town, which in the mid-20th century still had all the best and worst characteristics of a Victorian village. A tight community with warm coherence and truly dreadful lack of basic facilities. And as it turned out, when I was seven years old, the town became a TB trap. Both my mother and I got TB. Bare of cars, riddled with narrow alleyways, small runnels and yards, in which three or four houses, one room up, one room down, were huddled around the common WC and the worn washhouse. So many ways to escape pursuit from other gangs from other streets, with whom we seemed to be in constant warfare. The town, empty every evening, a labyrinth of alleys and small squares, was our adventure playground. I was never more than two shouts away from my own house and safety. My mother would go into the street and say, where is he? That would be passed on. This rapping in recognition was intensified by what happened every day on the streets where you nodded or greeted every person you met, many of whom would ask for your father or mother, or rather your dad and mum. I know now that there were tormented and dangerous people in the town, that misery, malnourishment and violence were there, but we children felt collectively watched over and were given full liberty, especially after dark. I could even see in that dark and roam round like a cat, down Meeting House Lane, through the winding ancient crops along Birdcage Walk, cutting from Dwisting Church Street past the Slaughterhouse into Water Street, games of Chessy taking over the whole town centre, games of Tiggy, always running, shouts in the dark, free as could be, while outside our nest of the town, the world was smashing itself to pieces in the name, so they said, of a freedom which ran through our young hands like warm sand, unforgettable, immeasurable, invaluable. Thank right. you, Melvin. It's very powerful. It's beautifully evoked. Well, there we are. I'm glad I wrote it. Thank you for asking me to write it. No, well, I'm honoured. And, of course, it wasn't the first time that you'd revisited your childhood in a literary sense because of your Cumbrian trilogy. And I was quite struck by The Soldier's Return, your much-claimed but very personal novel about your childhood, that you started that with the library and your protagonist's mother, Ellen, Joe's mum, but also the surrogate, the fictional surrogate of your own mother. She's in the library researching Burma, trying to understand where her husband is coming back from. Yeah. It's also interesting in the context of this conversation, of course, that number one page was the library in terms of your way into this story of your childhood. Well, it would be her way in, yes. I don't remember that precisely. <laughs> Just I was to, struck to come by come clean for, on this. Is <laughs> well, for obvious reasons. For <laughs> Wrote obvious it reasons. a long time ago. But yes, I mean, she would pop in. It was very handy having it in the yard. Yeah. And actually, again, doing my research, I saw in the second novel in the sequence, A Son of War, that you described the library and Mr. Willie Carrick, who I know is a big figure. But the library, you wrote, the library was in the council yard just off Station Road, up a short flight of stone steps and in, into a muffled, mantled gloom. Willie Carrick, town clerk, town historian, town librarian, opened the place up twice a week for two hours in the evening. And then you're, you write about Sam, the father, being there. Sam was there a smack on six, calculating that he would have a few minutes alone with Willie, who greeted him with ill-concealed surprise and open pleasure. Do you want any help, Sam? And then here's Willie's description, which is wonderful. Willie Carrick's face was broad, brown from his all-weather walking, eyes that missed nothing, long, thin lips white hair neat around the tonsure of baldness, as reliable a face as you could want, Sam thought, and because Willie was friendly, he hurdled his embarrassment. To be honest, Willie, I do. It's lovely, and it's also very redolent of the sort of ultimate librarian, or exactly what you want in a, walking into a library, that man, Mr. Willie Carrick. It was interesting for me rereading and visiting those books that you were returning, as with the first memory essay, homeward and sort of crossing the lines of innocence and experience. And these books are so powerful because they're not sentimentally 
written. They're unflinchingly written and in beautiful prose. But I think the moving qualities come from the visceral struggles of your characters to express themselves emotionally and rediscover a way of living together after the war and you meeting your father for the first time and finding a common ground in terms of how they can re-inhabit the spaces that they thought they would be in and perhaps they partly were in before he went away and perhaps before you were on the scene. But also I'm interested that you, in the process of, not to get too meta, but in the process of writing them, you were yourself trying to find the right sort of grammar and the right sort of voice as a writer and transposing them into a fictional framework, of course. But there seems to be a coming together there in terms of the self-exploration, if I'm not being too fanciful or cod psychology or whatever you might say. Well, when I, to take that particular book, The Soldier's Return, that started after my father died. And I realised how little I'd really known him because he'd been away for the first crucial, according to the Jesuits and Freud and Wordsworth, the first crucial seven years of my life. Right. More or less, I'd seen little blurs of him when he came back on leave and I could remember or misremember those little blurs or hold on to things that never happened. And then as soon as he came back, he and my mother went into solid work. He went back to the factory and then he hated that. So he got a tenancy of the worst pub in town, and I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, there were about 15 pubs in the town then, and the Blackmore was a mess, complete mess. Although uh, it's still here, we just it's still well, yeah, well, he, And he yeah. took it on because he could be his own boss. Right. He, he was a, a big drinker, but he stopped drinking. He never drank after he got the pub, either in the pub or out, and he's always had good reasons for it. And I, <laughs> I once asked him why, I said, well, if I give somebody the wrong change, I don't want them to be able to say it's because I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> And secondly, and he never broke a law, he closed at 10 o'clock, never any late drinking. He said, if I don't break the law, they can't throw me out. <laughs> so it was his own man in that sense. But in those days, pubs were open some days a week. You opened at 11.30 in the morning till 3, you opened again at 5.30 to 10 every day. In that little pub, there were four rooms. In winter, there were four fires to lay, things to swab out. My mother did all that, cleaning and this and the other. So they were hard at it. And before then, she worked at the factory, the women's factory, they called it the Red Mains, which made clothes, and she was, she was a button maker. And when she got married, she was the gift that the factory gave you was, if you were a woman, was they fired you. Oh. Uh, you got chucked out. You got a prodded rug or a box of fish knives, and you got fired. Wow. And so she started cleaning other people's houses. Before then, she went on a, around delivering parcels in the country on a big heavy bike. And Dad worked at the factory, as I said, first, and then he worked in a pub in the evenings and part-time bookie. Looking back now, although I wouldn't have expressed it, like wanted to get out of that house, mm. I think Dad just wanted to get out and find somewhere else. A pub had a flat above it, which seemed to be wonderful. So being that they worked like that, I was outside a lot of the time. Whenever I was in my bedroom reading or outside roving the streets looking for friends to, to play with. You would knock on people's door, can William come out to play? Is Jackie in? And so on and so forth. We were the dog pub, the hound dogs, which is a big sport around here. And sometimes there'd be 40 or 50 dogs in the pub, big dogs waiting for the buses to take them to where they had their dog races. And there was a pub for the pigeon men and there's the pub from the supporters of Carlisle United and there's a pub for the darts men and, and so on and so forth. We were the dog pub. So it was very busy, central, you knew everybody. It was quite a tough little pub to start my dad had to keep barring people which given that this is was at one stage a very rough town mm. wasn't easy for him to do and they would come on sunday and she's always on saturday nights and they'd come back on sunday morning and say can you let us back in stan I, I didn't mean it i won't do it again and he would say no you're barred for six months and i was watching some of those encounters and they were very tense yeah. but these are tough buggers when they go dad was shaking he says he's such a nice lad but he just can't take drink <laughs> but they were they were nice lads but they were digging yeah. they were tough as teak it was an emotionally complicated childhood. And the shadow of illegitimacy, which, as it were, became hereditary, <laughs> looking back. I mean, my mother was obviously illegitimate, obviously. My mother was illegitimate, but somehow it landed on me as well. There was these looks of a, his mother, you know, as if it had been my mother's fault that she'd been born. <laughs> and then the worst thing, that she'd had a child, <laughs> which compounded the felony. There was that around. It wasn't big, but looking back, there was something about that. So it was quite complex, which of course made it interesting. And just doing so much. And the church was a massive factor. 
yeah. church music, church. And they sort of, I was a fundamentalist Christian until I was about 14 or 15. You could have said there was a miracle that happened in the high street yesterday afternoon. I said, I wasn't in a bit surprised. <laughs> Speaking of funny voice, you wrote very grippingly in The Adventure of English of the language's origins in relation to your own, writing that perhaps my interest in English began when I was speaking at least two versions of it in my childhood. I enjoyed also when you wrote there, for example, that you would thee and thou each other as if we had just got off the Mayflower. Are you able still to to jump between those dialects? We did the end of each other. The dialect was very strong, and the accent was very strong. I was to go on as our age. said Gajio yonder. You didn't think what I said. These were just general hellos. I'm not making it up. We had a little bit of Indian because we were a very big army area. This in the northwest recruited big armies, and a lot of them had gone to India, so they'd come back with Gaji and Pani and so on, which entered our dialect. We also were a place up next to the cemetery, a place called Black Tipo, where gypsies wintered. And so you got gypsy words, like ducal for dog and mort for girl and dukas for bathing costume and so on. They, oh, wow. they entered into them. They were the small things. But the main thing was the sort of Norse impact and the way of pronunciation and the words... There's a Cumberland dialect dictionary that I've got several, but one of them is as big as uh, Middlemarch, as big as a massive novel by George Eliot and packed with words. This, I've got a little glossary here from a man called William Dickinson who did a lot of work on the dialect. A word called thrang that was used when I was a kid, as gay thrang, gay meaning berry, and thrang meaning busy. And there are other words like beck meaning stream, fell, you've been to the fells, well, that's that's Norse for hill, and on they go... Kuddy, meaning a donkey. As to have seen a kuddy lap a five yard yet. Uh, have you ever seen a donkey jump a five bar gate? Yet was always gay. The farmers would still count in an old dialect, yan, tian, tether, mether, pimp, settler, pether, heather, pether, dick. That's one to ten. And they would often bid like that in the auctions around here. My grandfather, there was one of 16 children, after being in the mines and going through the First World War with seven of his brothers, six of his brothers, Ended up after a pit accident as a parkkeeper in Wickham. Next door was a house, not grand, but in those terms, a detached house with a garden by the Barnes family. And they were very nice people. Once they had a professor to stay and they heard my grandfather talking and copied it all down. Because my grandfather talked pure dialect wow. all the time. And so it was another language. Yeah. And it was knocked out of us. When, and it had an accent as well. It's called Lampler Club. It's an account of a festival day. The significance of Lampler to me that it was as far north as the Normans came. They didn't really penetrate this area at all. Oddly enough, neither did the Romans. They built a sort of circle of forts around it. Didn't go into the central lake district. But the Norsemen did. They came over and went up the rivers with their flat bottom boats and settled. And Wurzus writes about them at the end of the 18th century, having their own language, running their own system. Well, this is a fair, and it's called Lampler Club. I'll just read a few lines. Please, yeah. Can you remember out about Lampler Club? when it was in full vogue, almost 1808. I was at, you know, the great yearly club days at Cross and can tell you something about it. It's still hodden on second Friday of June and that year a great het day it was. It was Wilson Monarchin turned president and a grand looking fellow he was and he marched to church and back again with a blue sash over his shoulders and a great flag flapping about his heed. A gay lot of folk had given up time to gang to church with him, and away we went, strutten. Now that's Lampler. And actually, when I was a kid, one of my aunts lived at Lampler, and they still had the club day. And then it faded. And I wrote a book called The Hired Man, Howard Goodall turned it into a musical, yeah. which is still played all over the place. And the club day scene is one of the good scenes. Mm. There are some beautiful songs about it. The last one, uh, yeah. And that's the way we talked, except rougher. And I didn't want to go rough because you wouldn't believe it. It's because I don't want to sound affected. I, I've lost touch with doing it naturally. I can still understand every word they say. But I don't like to talk it myself because it seems almost patronising. So you're in a quite a difficult position. Or I am anyway, it's my fault. The hill farmers have been uh, God knows how long. And they're still talking. They still talk two languages, a very simple, straightforward English and a very broad dialect still. And the accent as much as the words. But a lot of words, as I said book as big as Middlemarch, full of words that most people in this country wouldn't recognise and wouldn't use. So it was a second language. It didn't have the ethnic force of Welsh or Gaelic or even Cornish, but it had its own power. And your passion for cultural history 
is renowned and stems obviously partly from those roots. But perhaps we could talk a little about your new novel, which is a departure in that it's not a Cumbrian novel. Experimental, it's not in Cumbria. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's another historical novel, and but many of your other historical novels have been Cumbrian. It's about Eloise and Abelard, and perhaps you could explain the bones of that story for the uninitiated. I can kick you off by saying that it's a tale of literature and philosophy, theology and scandal, and romantic love in the high Middle Ages. And if you enjoyed those words, that's probably because they're yours from in our time. So it's a cheat for me there to set the story of Eloise and Abelard. But I greatly enjoyed it. But it's a complex book in terms of the telling. Can you tell us why you were drawn to this? Abelard and Eloise came out of a, it was a set book for O-Levels when I was 15 by a monk called Charles Reed then in the 30s, 40s and 50s, very, very famous and substantial writer, well-known, and his most famous book was The Cloister of the Hearth, The Cloister and the Hearth, that was a set book. And what I remember at the end of it, there's Abelard and Eloise. He's a great philosopher, scholar. She is a woman who is also a great scholar, and they're together walking in what felt like a rose garden and talking to each other. Now, I kept remembering that. And then I, I saw the letters, and I, I read the letters, which were an astounding revelation because it was, that was an idyll, nothing like that. It was a violent love affair between the great radical philosopher of the 12th century whose books were burnt. He was almost stoned to death for his opinions, but he prevailed and is still rated as a philosopher eight years, 100 years on. And a woman, Eloise, who's noted to be the cleverest woman in France, and those two were entwined, and, then, and it was an enormous story. I thought, well, I'll write that sometime. But I waited and waited. Now, I just decided after I finished a book called Remember Me, which is an autobiographical sequence, and Grace and Mary, which is all, I wanted to move away. So I moved away to the Middle Ages. I did a book set in the Peasants' Revolt, which was an unacknowledged part of English history, the biggest uprising we've ever had. And it was airbrushed out of history, as the Gordon Riots were later, the airbrushed out of history. Then I thought I'd, I'd try Abelard and Eloise. It was very difficult. Most it difficult must have book. been very difficult yeah. in terms of transposing a 21st century novel into, as we say, the high Middle Ages. And it's very beautifully constructed in a structural sense, but also the diction of the novel was redolent of courtly love in a very beautiful, evocative way. Obviously, these compliments are hard to... We're not very good at taking compliments in this part of the world. Well, they're all, they're uh, all genuine and, and, and sincere. <laughs> or giving them, I'm afraid to say. But still, it caught on to something about me, and I wondered why it clicked, because it's so foreign, really. I mean, literally and psychologically. And I think it was because I loved that book. I remember all sorts of things about that book. But at that time, I was... And for many years, I still am, but not to that intent. I was intensely passionate about books. I remember when I finished the A-levels, when I discovered Wooden Books by Thomas Mann, and I just read it through twice. Read it, read it again. And I was lying beside the tennis courts because we'd finished the exam, so you could get on. You immediately uh, started it over? Absolutely. I've never done that. And then I read everything I could get hold of by Thomas Mann. Mm. And so this image of this scholar... And I think, looking back, I thought I rather wanted to be a scholar. That must have been something to do with it. And I thought that at that time I wasn't going to be anything like a scholar because I was supposed to leave school when I was 15. Like all my friends did at that time, you're talking about 1954, that's what happened. Schools, they just cleared out the A-form because they were, if they were farmers' sons, away they went back to the farms. They'd stopped coming into school when they were 14, actually, if there was a harvest or home. The, a lot of the lads were sons of shopkeepers and that, and they went to work in the shop, or they got good jobs because their fathers were at the factory or in local government. And I just thought I'd go down the factory and probably work in the accounts office because I was quite good at sums, as they call them in those days. I didn't give it a second thought. And then I discovered four years ago, when I was 75, in a film that somebody made about, they made about me, I talked to my old school teacher, Mr James, who's still alive. He's as sharp as a knife. And he's 97 now. And he said, you don't know, but I went to talk to your parents three times, Stan and Ethel, to tell them they should stay on at school. And they'd never told me. Wow. And he'd never told me. And I wondered what the objection was, because my father was very clever. He was one of eight, eldest of eight, so he had to leave school. But he'd passed two scholarships, one for a public school for the parishes of the north of England, northwest of England, public school in Liverpool, which he couldn't take because he was the oldest, get out and work, and another for this grammar school, yeah. Couldn't take that up either. So it wouldn't be that, it wouldn't be the work. 
And I said, Mr. James, what he said, I said, suddenly thought you wouldn't enjoy it. You would like it here and you wouldn't enjoy the people you'd meet and you would, you'd be happier here. And my mother certainly didn't want me to go. She wanted me to stay anyway and get married, have a lot of children, and she wanted to get on with being a grandmother. <laughs> it's a curiosity, but I'm pleased I did it. People, it's gone down perfectly okay. And the Americans are going to be published in America, and there seems to be a fair wind behind it there, so we'll see. Going back to Wigton and moving perhaps more broadly into Cumbria, you said that it was tricky to write this new novel outside of that zone, as it were. But you do keep coming back here. And I know that you've talked in the past about your depressions, one specific crisis as a teenager and another as a 30-year-old, and that Words Was Prelude was a tool of sorts to help you emerge from that fog. But this place has a very, very strong visceral importance for you. Yes, it does. And I don't know the rest of you, but it inhabited my mind. I think when you're at school in Cumberland and you like English, you've got to make a deal with Wordsworth. You either think he's great or you just think he's terrible and ignoring. You've got to make a pact. Yes. And I like the lyrical thing, but I wasn't all that interested till I read The Prelude when I was about 14. And especially, when especially the sort of cracking up that the boy experienced in various ways. And I just thought, crikey, he knew about that. And it's recognition, which is a part of the power of literature. And then I read him much more intensely. And actually, it was when about 14 when I had a horrible crack-up that lasted about a year and a half. I didn't know where I was. And I was chucked out from the third A to 3L, lower third, where full of farmers' sons who didn't be at school at all. And it was quite, it wasn't rough, but it was quite tough. It wasn't tough in a Glasgow sense, but it was tough enough. Mm. And I was told I'd be sent to the St. Ramon School if I didn't buck up. I didn't know where I was. And I'd had this thing, and it was an awful thing. I had body experiences. And, and one of the ways I got through it, I'm sure, was that was when I just decided to... Something made me start to read very intensely and read good stuff. And Wordsworth was one way in. And I just I remember just reading and reading and gradually calming down and gradually getting a grip. I can understand just from an outsider's point of view, having been in this area the last few days and almost crashed several times driving through it because of the stunning natural beauty outside the window every every minute. But I understand there are 400 mountains, 33 lakes, and having studied Wordsworth and the Romantics a little bit, it suddenly all clicks into place somehow. The, the, the nature, the sublime, all these things that you've learned about and you've read about. So I can understand that whether knowingly or not, you're writing innate tradition, but also out of this landscape. Yes. And Wordsworth was one of the key persons at that time. Some Germans had written about this. In fact, another Cumbrian, a man called Thomas Brown, who was vicar over there, wrote about it in a very important poem 20 years before Wordsworth. But the idea that nature being a force for calm and for intelligence, instead of being, just a century earlier, Defoe had been a tour of Britain. He'd come to the lectures, Daniel Defoe, yeah. and gone to the lectures, and described it as horrid place, Terrible, don't go up the mountains, rocks will fall on you and crash on you, barbaric. And nature was regarded as an enemy, as a terrible place. And Wordsworth said, you know, one impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man and moral evil and of God than all the sages can, saying, listen, listen to nature. To sounds that are the ghostly language of the ancient earth or that make their dim abode in distant winds. That's right. It feels very much specific to this landscape. Yes. There are lines like that all over the place. If even in, not even, in Tintin Abbey, an early one, which, of course, he wrote down, down south, he's already into that, the, the force and the power, if you listen. And you could, if you wanted to, as it were, politicise it, say this was an intimation, to use another word he liked, of what would become people fascinated by Gaia, the idea of the earth being one thing and we being part of that one thing, and the climate being something that we could destroy climate and, and other life on Earth as well as benefit from. So that must have meant something to me and to yes. thousands and millions of other people. But you mostly write still up here in Cumbria, not, not in London, is that correct? Well, no, I sort of write where Everywhere, I wherever yeah, you can, I mean, when you can. I'm in London most of the time. I've come up here. I read a book called Credo, set up here, and I sat on Bassenweight Lake, about 7th century nun. And I just came up here to be absolutely on. You come up, I go to the shops and we can store up for 10 days or 14 days. 
and go up to the house and the cottage. So it's and back to the, the kids. Yeah, likes, yeah, I just write solid, 12, solitude. 15 hours yeah. a day because it was already in my head, for better or worse, there it was, yeah. And, of course, you're talking about 12, 16 hours a day and you are incredibly prolific and your output as an individual is prodigious. How many South Bank shows have there been? Uh, about 900. And in our time... 900, neck and neck. Really? <laughs> wow. As it happens, yes. How and, amazing. And now time's catching up because we're doing fewer South Bank shows. How amazing. And thinking about, obviously, these are huge legacies that you're continuing to build culturally for this country. And I started to think, again, I'm overdoing, perhaps over-egging this, but coming here to this library to discuss libraries with you, there's an archivist in you as well, whether, again, not by necessarily by design, but over time, the longevity and the power of those two shows has led to this, you've built a formidable library. Well, it, we now realise, and, and you would appreciate this, that it is. I didn't start off saying I would do it. I, I mean, I got a two-year contract for the South Bank show, and it was such a disaster in the first year that I thought it was a one-year contract. I mean, it started off calamitously. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I discovered the great rule if you're starting anything new. You know what the rule is? No. Don't write a manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a manifesto for what I should, and the critics loved it, and they tore it to shreds. The manifesto was that I was going to do an arts program, because ITV put a lot of money into this program, and what they wanted was they were going for, they wanted big classical orchestras, and I wanted pop music, and I wanted television drama as well as stage drama, and I wanted comedians as well as poets. We started deliberately with Paul McCartney, and then we had the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. And then we had the Royal Shakespeare Company. And the first play we did was a television play, Potter's play. It went like that. And the critics didn't like it. I remember one big piece of the Daily Telegraph saying something like, we admire ITV for trying to do a new arts programme, but we draw the line at Lennon-McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that guy to come back now and say, have you seen yeah. what's happening to Lennon-McCartney's work? It's everywhere, all over the place. When you run an arts programme, you're on the margins, especially in ITV. There's three things important. You've got to get a big audience. Well, we couldn't do that. We were on too late and we couldn't do that. We occasionally got it for McCartney and got it for sure. Billy Connolly, but not so You've got to get the critics on your side, which we didn't have. And the third thing, you've got to have the executive in the company on your side. And they were losing faith <laughs> fast. <laughs> so, and so halfway through the first series, I thought I went to Michael Grade and I said, it isn't working, is it, Michael? And I said, no, he said, I said, some of the Adams are working. The Paul McCartney was very good and the Dennis Potter was very good. All the new stuff was very good. It wasn't good. I said, what I'd like to do is to, for you to stop the program for three or four months and I'll, I'll sort it out and we'll come back okay. And he said, can't do that. So you're on for, I had 26 programs then and we'd done about eight or nine. So I went back to the office and I, this is all, why shouldn't it be true? I talked to the guys, I said, I know what I'm going to do. Myself and one other guy, Tony Cash, we're going to do these programs ourselves for seven weeks, just the two of us. And the rest of you are going to make one subject films. And I'm going to do films about people. I'm going to do, if I never make other programs, I'm going to do the first English film on Ingmar Bergman. I'm going to do a film on Pinter. I'm going to do a film with Hockney. I'm going to do a film on Myling. That's what we're going to do. And you go and do that, and we'll keep the show on the air. It was, it was a nightmare. You were so knackered trying to get it. I remember once we wanted to do Simenon. So we flew, we were out on Saturday nights then, against much of the day, thank you very much, mm-hmm. Ben, you know. that. Anyway, so we, we flew to Lausanne, where he's living, and I knew his books a bit, but I had to mung up more. We got there on the Friday, Friday night. We shot on what's called reversal, which means it was on film in those days. When we, you know all about this. And when we came back on for late Friday night on Saturday, we could cut and put the film out without treating it anyway. We could go out on reversal and we'd switch into... But we had only that time to do it. And, and meanwhile, Tony was doing something in a concert in the East End of London. And he was having a fight to get that finished. So we got the seminar just about done by about 10 past nine. It went on at 10.30 and Tony got his. It was a concert. He was doing, I'll come to Carl. Remember, Cooper, the concert on the work of Cooper. And I sat watching it on Saturday night and Kate had gone out or something. And I just, I was exhausted. And then we're okay. I thought, God. Is this the best we can do? <laughs> and then we came on. And the other thing that keeps you on air is you win prizes. 
And that year, at the end of the season, we won everything. Could have won the Grand National. But because of these one-offs, we won the first ever pre-Italia for, for ITV. And ITV never won it. It was the big thing then. It was like the image then. And we won that. And then we won another prize after. And so that You won us. so many prizes that now you are the prize. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we did. We got them. And that keeps you on there. Yeah. And then that, so that meant we got our second year. And then when we'd hit our stride, so we were okay. You're talking about archive. It's now an archive at Leeds University. And they're archiving it. We're a big part of it, building it up, because they have a lot of special sections. They're the biggest number of special collections in British universities. I was chancellor there for 15 years, nothing to do with me, the special collections. But I did suggest that to them, because not only do they get the films, but for every film that we made, it's about a sixth of the material, sometimes a tenth, but let's say always a sixth. So for every hour show, and we've got another five hours, sometimes another ten hours. Well, we preserved all that. Mm. So they're getting all that as well. That's immense. And so it's immense. So they say, I interviewed Mailer three times. So say three hours a time, nine hours. And say we put out in a program of 50 minutes, half an hour, an hour, an hour. There's about at least seven hours of completely unseen Mailer there for people who are interested. As for in our time, I mean, I thought that I, they gave me a six-month contract and because they thought doing intellectuals on a Thursday morning was a dead duck. And it happened to take off just a little bit. You just needed to take off a little bit. And now it's really taken off. Along the way, you have allowed everyone in an egalitarian, non-judgmental way, just like libraries, free at the point of use and unbothered about who you are or where you've come from, treating everyone the same, an inspirational and transformative wealth of material, a treasure trove. I, I know Tracy Emin, for one, credits the South Bank show as her inspirational beacon as a 10-year-old in growing up in Margate. Just, and that's just one person. Yeah, quite a lot of people we get doing yeah. that. And and like, it, but it is very similar to a yeah. library in, in essence. Ian Rankin says he saw the programme in McEwen and thought, I can do that. And a lot of, a lot of people at that age caught it, catching people at the right time. But it feels, uh, again, that maybe there's something built in from your, your well, yeah, childhood I mean, here I, as well. If I'd been asked what I wanted to do when I went to university, I'd be, I'd, to make them shut up, I'd have said, be a teacher. Also, I would have liked being a teacher. I had a dream on of being a village teacher. He tried to re-educate himself to become a village teacher, but that made it too difficult. Teacher to village school, that was his ideal. Yeah, I'd have been a teacher. My first job I applied for at Oxford was to be a WA lecturer, Workers' Education Authority. You might remember that. I taught working people in the evenings. Brian Walton got that. Uh, which was a bit of a nuisance, but he was far cleverer and better able than I was. So I got the job at the BBC. Both of them would be part of libraries. The South Bank show eventually, it's going to take a while. The copyright things are, are just dreadful, but we'll get through it. But the radio thing is already a library. Yes. Most schools just clock them because it's so cheap. They get it for nothing at the BBC. They clock it in and the people use it for the exams or for enjoyment. And, you know, the, because of the technology, well, you know, because you've changed this library with technology. Because of this technology now, in our time, when I took it on, got 400,000, and now it gets two and a half million. But that's not the real thing, the podcast thing, because we do an extension to it. Now, because of the new technology, we had 10 million podcasts in the first three months of this year, and they're all around the world. You literally do get letters, honestly, from a guy who works nice in a factory in Toronto, from <laughs> one of the best ones I was at from, we were doing something on China, on Confucius, and we got very angry letters while we were on air from the University of North China saying we hadn't taken this into consideration. <laughs> <laughs> They're a bit pissed off with us. So uh, there we are. There's a, a guy who drives a, a lorry in Melbourne who's a keen listener, and it's lovely. It's, that's the great thing about radio and television, the greatest thing. There's no snob value attached. You only have to press a button. It's like putting on an electric light. You don't have to dress up. You don't have to have an education. All you do is click a button and you're there. And that's been always its basic attraction for me, more than books even. Yes, and hopefully the lorry driver is listening to this as well. <laughs> and you're, you're our eyes and ears as the host of those shows. You don't mess around with your guests. It's a very rigorous show in our time. Yeah. But also there's no room for snobbery at all in any of this. But the fact is that, and you'll find this in Britain, I mean, the library, when, you, when people come in, there's an immense democracy of knowledge. Yes. It's just getting it to people. Yeah. And that's what you do. In the library here, it's getting, getting making it available. I think it's making it available and 
They're very nervous, some people. There's an invisible barrier, and it's like they call it a reference interview. You're dragging out of them what they want to know rather than asking you what they think they want to know, which is a different thing. Interesting. You see what I mean? It's finding out what they really want to know because they're nervous for whatever reason. Well, there is also the element that you walk through the door and there's a limitless resource, a bit like in our time. There's such a wealth of information here. I mean, going back to Cumbria, you have a beautiful section all around the local area which I presume is that still well-thumbed and a go-to section. Yes. We have local studies collections in most of our branches. They're not archives, they're local studies collections, and they have been a bit sporadic, but we do keep them. We've got microfilm, microfiche. You know, we've got newspapers in working to an on-microfilm. You can go back and have a look at. And it is used. We get people researching family history, they come up, or I get inquiries from all over the place. But obviously I need a reference point. You can't just look at the microfilm and your eyes fall out of your head after a while. You need a date or, you know, some kind of date. But they are well used. We have a local history month every year because they've got a great display case and they've got local society that come and do a display mainly or the staff will do it. And it's absolutely fantastic because they really promote it. Dialects, tales, history of Wigton. Like Melvin said, there's factories. We've had people bringing stuff in from their shop as a like a museum piece, they'll bring in and they'll do a little piece on it. And it attracts people and gets them in and they ask questions. And the libraries are still thriving in the region as a whole? Yes. Like I said earlier, we're trying to get people in all the time. We've become part of the community. If there's a need, we'll try and satisfy that need. It's about culture, getting online, that's big. Plus people have to do the universal credit online. Maybe they've never used a computer before. They're very resistant. They're scared of it. They think they're going to break it. And it's getting them beyond that barrier. I do IT tasting sessions with people. It's a case of little and often. It's like driving a car. You're not just going to get in it and do it. You've got to have lessons. And it's getting them across all that barrier of saying, I need to do this because I won't get any money if I don't. I do internet tasting with people, get them used to a computer, get them online, that kind of thing. I do family history with people, family trees, because I've been doing mine for 30-odd years. It's that little spark that makes a difference and they come back. Well, again, there are are society's safe spaces, as I I like to say. And again, listening to you immediately, any notions of the library as the fusty old book repository is immediately dispelled and the importance of these places and communities and sadly so many of them are closing down up and down the country is made very very clear i mean i've been a librarian for 30 years but when i was a child and i went to some library in bolton they had the men's reading room so one it was a reading room and went and second it was just the men just for men no and it was a lot of shush I mean, some, oh no, I became a librarian, but I've had lots of experience in different types of libraries, telly and oil industry and things like that. So you bring all that with you. Well, again, there's a trend also for volunteer libraries and librarians' jobs are under threat as well, which is crazy. We don't currently use volunteers. Good. We try and keep our libraries open with the staff we have and be flexible. And we also have community groups in when we're closed. You know, they can use it as a meeting place. And we promote groups that meet within our libraries. Like we have reading groups that meet, many, many reading groups that meet within our libraries. Maybe they're in closed hours, but they use our facilities. We have UCA who meet at Cockermouth, for instance. They have their own room. They use our facilities, so that means they're in the library. You know, And if they're in the library, they can see what we do, what we offer, the cultural offer that we have for everybody. Yes. Melvin, can I ask, as, again, thinking back to that kid in the library in Wigton and also your prodigious career, which seems to me to be partly built on that kid's insatiable curiosity, as much as your work ethic, it seems to be this intense curiosity across, you know, science, religion, culture, etc., everything, your ravenous for knowledge and to spread knowledge. What do you make of, if I may ask, the library closures more generally? I think it's a disgrace. It's short-sighted. It's like, oh, I don't know, expanding to the present state of our political condition. Let's no. leave that to one side. There's only about three words for it, and we'll keep away from that. It's a disaster. Different tributaries have come into the area of knowledge. But the library, and I think it's been explained here very clearly and well, it has a flexibility to be 
more than just a place where knowledge is stored. It's a place, as we've heard, rather than where knowledge is shared, where knowledge is developed, where different sorts of knowledge can come into It becomes a place as well as something that's an ambition or something. And in these areas of learning, I think that association and companionship is essential. We go back to Mr. Carrick. He was a companion. You go back to school, Arthur Tillotson Blacker. He was a teacher, you know, who was, and then other people in the class read what you'd read because we all had to read aloud in those days, read poetry aloud, and so on and so forth. And here, so people are coming, it's been explained to us, people are coming to the place. So as a social force, it's been very, very fruitful and important. And as an intellectual force, and the great thing is, in a library, is that the choice is yours to a vaster extent than I think you will ever be able to countenance. And also you can browse. Where's browsing when things are coming at you through? Where's it the odd flicking over the odd page or two? Where's that? Where's the feeling of being in an ambiance where this is a regular thing to be, surrounded by books, picking up It's a big cultural force. It's not for nothing that everybody, when you think about ancient civilization, one of the things you think of, Christ, they burnt the library at Alexandria. Just think of what we lost. Scholars are still tearing their hair out with the books that were lost in the library in Alexandria because it was that important. There are all sorts of other ways of passing on knowledge. Or, but that was what mattered. The thing. And I think it matters like that. I think it's terribly short-sighted. If you're a fairly well-off community, as we are where I live in London, and as others are, you keep it going. We keep it going. It's voluntary, but that's not the best way. And give books to it and give money to it and so on. But you can't expect libraries in places where I've got very little money to do that. It's a shocking development. And it's just part of what's going bad about our country, frankly. That's the mildest thing I can say. It's ridiculous. And to keep it going, as has been done here, is remarkable and to be applauded. And I hope it from here it grows again. People will see how important it is. Agreed. And hopefully listeners to this podcast will jump on this train as well and celebrate their local libraries and champion them. I have to ask, I, I always am curious in this podcast, as we're in the library and we've been talking books, how, Melvin, do you organise your books? Are you very fastidious? Up in the cottage here in Cumberland, I've got a Cumberland room, but there's nothing alphabetical about it. I was frantically trying to get... <laughs> <laughs> I had books on the dialect, <laughs> and I've got about 40, and I was saying, where the hell did I put that one? And no, that one's too big to take in. So I'm not very good well, at that. Well, at least you can browse and store that know where the, this magic of and finding. And in London, it's even worse, but it's, it's uh, occasionally you get a set, you know. You, I remember buying a set of old Dick, and not valuable or anything, but just big print, battered set. Well, they're all on the shelf, so you know where that is. So that's easy. <laughs> no, I'm not very good at it, to tell you the truth. And Catherine? Mm, is your very catalogued being a being an no, efficient librarian it's very here. random but i i do craft so i've got my craft book together i've got my crochets and my patchwork and my novels and my reference but i borrow a lot of books so i don't have a massive collection of books at home because i can borrow them from the library <laughs> there you go and i don't get a fine <laughs> say, no, say no more <laughs> so i do borrow a lot it keeps our issue figures up <laughs> Well, on borrowing, on that note, would you kindly browse the shelves, Melvin, yeah. together and uh, perhaps find something to borrow and I take I know which section I'm going to. Come on a second and see yes, what you've got in the dialect. Thank you very much, both of you, so much for joining us. And, yes, happy browsing now. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. So we're, at the, we're in the local history section, which is yes, where I want to look at. History. There's a surprising number of books on Wick from um, a long time ago. It's been written about. I'm writing what I think will be my final book about Wickton now. It's just a factual book about from the war till I left the town. A collection of stories of Wicktonians about their past and about their... So is there anything that you're drawn to? Well, I'm looking shows? for a book about the dialect. Do we have any here about the local dialect? We've got walks, we've got uh, travels. Do we have specific dialect books? We don't have anything by Willie Carrick here, do we? He wrote a history of Wickham, a very good history of Wickham. That's another thing he did. He's quite a man. Busy man. Are they interested in dialect? No, I'm not sure. They're interested in getting away from it. James Rebanks, it's a good book, that, isn't it? It's a yes. great book. Mm, a very good book. It's very well done. 
Very well done. Well, Wallace well, certainly plenty to have a go at. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Ex Libris. If, like me, you enjoyed visiting Wigton Library with Melvin Bragg, then please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, wherever it is that you tune in. That way, you'll help us spread the word and champion libraries. To see inside Wigton and explore the podcast's other venues, as well as discover loads more on libraries and independent bookshops, please visit our website, www.exlibrispodcast.com. You can also get updates on Twitter and Instagram. Find me at That's Ben Holden. Write a really insightful review or big up this episode on social media, and you could even win a signed hardback copy of Melvin's excellent new novel, Love Without End. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself with Grundy Lazimbra. Its music is composed by Adam Pleese. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine.